Welcome, my brothers and sisters. I'm Pastor Murphy. We welcome you to the worship experience of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church. It's our joy that you have joined us on this Lord's Day, and it certainly is our prayer that the Word of God instructs you and empowers you, and that the worship by way of singing and celebration blesses you with inspiration as you get yourself prepared to meet the challenges of a coming week. Be blessed. Sit back. Embrace, soak up what God has for you today. We'll look forward to seeing you again in the name of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. 
to the announcements for the weekly online activities here at Greater Little Zion for the week of August 15th. You are invited to join us for our adult Sunday school each Sunday at 8.30 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. The youth and young adult Sunday school is held each Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Prayer meeting is held each Wednesday at 6 p.m. and you're invited to join a group of Zion prayer warriors as they offer intercessory prayers. Prayer meeting is followed by the adult Bible study led by Reverend Dr. Murphy at 7.30 p.m. For the months of August through September, the adult Bible study will be exploring the book entitled making friends making disciples growing your church through authentic relationships authored by lee b spritzer the focus of this study is to engage participants to explore how we can improve our church membership through relationships the book is available on amazon if you would like to do some advanced reading Deacon Joanne Johnson O'Neill and Reverend Dr. Murphy will be co-facilitating these lessons and you are invited to participate and invite a friend to share in these in-depth discussions. The Missionary Ministry is sponsoring a drive-through school distribution in conjunction with the drive-through food distribution. The first distribution will go to Zion members on Thursday, August 19th from 5 to 7 p.m. here at the church. It would be followed by a community distribution on Saturday, August 21st from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. The ministry will be distributing 100 backpacks filled with school supplies on a first-come, first-served basis while they last. As a reminder, COVID guidelines will be strictly adhered to for the safety of our volunteers and surrounding community. For additional search information, please visit the website at glzbc.org. Thank you and have a blessed week. Good morning, church. I want to take your mind back to where Jesus died 
a hill called Calvary, where he died for your sins and, and where he died for my sins. The blood that Jesus shed for me.
this morning to each of you for this moment of the preached word. We invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with us to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, and we shall read verses 29 through 38. Genesis chapter 42, verse 29 through 38. Here's our lesson. The word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 42, beginning in verse 39. When the brothers came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that had happened to them. The man who is governor of the land spoke very harshly to us, they told him. He accused us of being spies, scouting out the land. But we said, we are honest men, not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One brother is no longer with us, and the youngest is at home with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was governor of the land told us, This is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, and take grain for your starving families, and go back home. You must bring your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother, and you may trade freely in the land. As they ended up their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and their father was terrified when they saw the bags of money. Jacob exclaimed, You are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too. Everything is going against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I'll be responsible for him. And I'll promise to bring him back. But Jacob replied, My son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and he is all that I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. Once again, we're coming to the final installation of our sermon title, The Shaking of a Guilty Conscience, Part 3. The Shaking of a Guilty Conscience, Part 3. Mahatma Gandhi made this powerful observation regarding an interpretive lens in which to view, life, to view life. He said, and I quote, every night when I go to sleep, I die. Every morning when I wake up, I am born again. Perhaps in some similar reflective fashion, Joseph employed this kind of thinking in order to survive his traumatic moments of the past. Each night before succumbing to the thirst of rest, he emptied his mind and emptied out his life of mistakes, his mishaps, his misunderstandings and violations and frustrations and agonies and disappointments, and yes, even unfulfilled dreams. He would lay them down, knowing that he must die in order for his sanity to remain stable. His awakening to the next morning is a reborn experience 
because he vowed in some fashion to see life and its experiences through a new set of lenses. Perhaps you and I can borrow this page of wisdom from both Gandhi and Joseph and vow each night to lay our burdens down before the Lord in order to empty our minds and life from the trauma of life's experiences. And yet, we are to awaken to a new morning of rebirth, giving life another shot at the great things it has in store for us. Perhaps Plato is correct in his suggestion. The greatest privilege of a human life is to become a midwife to the awakening of the soul in another person. Listen to the rating of that. It sort of transitions from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. The greatest privilege of a human life is to become a midwife to the awakening of the soul in another person. It sort of underscores the continual reference that Jesus makes to the disciples, for us to the disciples, I should say, love one another as I have loved you. It elevates the idea of the Apostle Paul and his epistle writings as he tells us we should be concerned about one another, love one another, pray for one another, support for one another. It appears that this kind of spirit is working in the life of Joseph when we read the narrative. Each morning, as he awoke to his new reborn state, he became fixated on awakening of the soul in another person, i.e. his brothers. No doubt those he encountered as well along the way, but centralizing on his brothers. This process, this principle, worked because when we view the behavior of Joseph, his brothers particularly, we recognize that their conscience is no doubt awakened. I call this the reflection of the brothers. Verses 21 through 22 of this, 21 through 28 of this 42nd chapter is just that. It's the reflection that the brothers have in reference to not only what they had done to Joseph, but their conscience now is awakened to the fact that they are indeed guilty. You can hear it in the words of Reuben, the older brother, whose infliction says without question, we are guilty and we know it. We are very guilty concerning our brother Joseph because we saw the anguish of his soul when he cried out to us and we didn't hear it, says Reuben. Before Joseph, they were unaware that Joseph had heard them as they admitted their guilt. But Joseph cared so much about them, operating as a midwife in the awakening of another soul. The Bible says in verse 24, chapter 20, 42, 
he turned away from the brothers and wept. Being the midwife, he saw the agony and the pain, the conviction that was welling up, at least nothing more, in now their verbiage, but obviously from their conscience as well, it's coming through. And Joseph felt that as he turned and wept, and now he knows that he is without question the midwife to stand in the gap for their soul. Just as Plato had said, he is the midwife to the awakening of another soul. That's what Joseph is called to do. And yet, when he speaks to the brothers and he lays down his mandate, he takes into captive Simeon. Why Simeon? Perhaps Joseph took Simeon because he was the leader in what the brothers had done to Joseph in past. But now, it can't be centered only on Simeon not even only on Reuben, but all of the brothers, it appears, were beginning to show some sense of true remorse and, and repentance and forgiveness. Listen to the three aspects of repentance that we hear in verse 21 of chapter 42. This is powerful. Listen to what the text says. It says in verse 21, clause A, Listen to what they say. Speaking among themselves, they say clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. That's their conscience speaking. We are being punished to what we did to our brother Joseph long ago. Remember, repentance begins first in the conscience because there has to be a reminding of the offense and then the embracing of the guilt. Look at the second phase. Clause B of verse 21, memory. Listen to what they say. We saw his anguish, past tense. We witnessed it. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. The memory haunted him enough to know Reuben as he speaks, but I believe all of them knew it. The memory haunted them in reference to what they did to Joseph. And the shaking of the guilty conscience caused them to realize we've made a grave error. There's conscience, there's memory, and then in the clause C of verse 21, there's reason. Listen to what they say. That's why we are in the trouble that we are in. They equate their problem, their trouble, their situation, even their family, to some sense of judgment that they have done wrong. But in reality, what's happening to the brothers is that they're being brought to the end of themselves. They can no longer merely just ignore what's going on in their conscience. And that's a good indication for us to understand as Christians being led by the Holy Spirit, his job is to convict us, to remind us in our spirit, to bring to remembrance that which we have done, 
And you know as well as I know that when we have done something that's not pleasing, it's the Spirit of God that brings that conviction that reminds us that we need to get it straight. Pre-presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Jesus gives this analogy. If your brother has offended you, don't come to the altar to bring the gift, but instead leave it there. Go back and fix it, then come back and make its presentation. Why? Because the conviction, the rationale, and the reasoning is, if I cannot fix what's going on horizontally, I'm certainly going to struggle at what's going on vertically. And God is calling us to forgive, but to repent because that becomes a critical nature of what we need to do to be better servants for the kingdom of God. The brothers are being brought to the end of themselves. And what deepens this conviction is Joseph's next action. His action of filling their sacks with the money they paid for the grain and then to give them the grain to give them further supplies that they would need for the journey and send them on their way. Verse 25 through 27, that's what we get by way of action of Joseph and that is going to deepen their conviction. So much so, said verse 28, that when they get back to their father, when they recognize, shall I say, as one, looked into and discovered. I think there's an interesting sort of parallel in the text. It'll tell us on one instance, one of them looked in the sack, and then when they get back to Jacob, all of them look in the sack. And so I'm convinced that as they look in this sack, as they get back to Jacob, they are going to struggle. And they are going to struggle because they will discover that something unusual has happened in their life. When they looked and discovered the money, says the text, verse 28 says, they conclude by saying, what has God done to us? Remember I told you earlier, they are equating this aggressive language and behavior from Joseph as a judgment from God based on the wrong that they have done, Joseph. Now they are equating even the provision in their sack and the giving back of their money as God perhaps judging them or setting them up for an even deeper judgment as well. The real issue is they did not know nor could they handle this act of grace by Joseph. You see, Joseph borrowed, I'm convinced, this grace prescription from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. You remember that? Listen to what it says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You will make him burn with shame and the Lord will reward you. That's the Good News Bible translation. Most of us are quite familiar with the King James Version that's often puzzling. It's a metaphor 
when it uses the same language, you will heap coals upon one's head. In that same proverb passage, I'm convinced that it's the reference point to which Paul used in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. And it's important because, listen to as Paul used this thing, he stretches out this idea of weeping coals upon the head of those who offend, but most importantly, bringing them to shame without much effort on your behalf. Listen to what he said, Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, says the word of the Lord, never pay back evil with more evil. Joseph already had practiced that. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. So in other words, even Paul advocates if you've had some Joseph brothers that have offended you like they did Joseph, never retaliate by doing evil for evil, but do what's honorable before folk because once again, in the hands of God, you are going to be the midwife to awaken the transgressor's soul enabling them to witness wrong that they have done. Listen to Paul. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, here it is, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, here's that line, you will heap burning coals on their heads. And then he ends it with the capstone. Verse 21. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. In other words, in this Joseph narrative so far, we've at least got enough indication that it's not a good thing to try to pay people back for that which they've done wrong to you. Never waste your time trying to figure out a way to pay them back because you will never get justice in that manner. But says Paul and even says Jesus in a very strange but yet metaphorical way in which he uses those same language in Matthew 25. Remember the words that Jesus said, but he expands it. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And then when the question is raised, to whom did we do this? The least of these, when you've done it to the least of these, my children, you've done it unto me. However, the brothers, interpret this act of grace by Joseph instead of retaliation, instead of rendering evil for evil, Joseph returns the money that they paid for the grain. Joseph gives them plenty of supplies to accompany them on the journey. He doesn't give them evil, he gives them 
grace. And the reality is they can't handle it. And let's just be honest. Whenever we offend someone and they continue to be kind and honest and loving and caring, it puts us in a very uncomfortable space. In reality, it's called unveiling the guilty conscience. Particularly when we know we've wronged them and we've yet attempted to provide any level of apology. So brothers are struggling. They think that this provision in their bags is a setup and most importantly they have blamed everything that has gone wrong thus far on God and it appears that God is against them moving forward. Now what they're not aware of is that God is actually working in the background to save them from the famine in Canaan. All of us got a little bit of a reaction to that. We, we can identify with these brothers' feeling of blaming God for what has gone wrong. And yet in this narrative, it keeps shifting. We started out with the brothers. It shifted to Joseph. It moved from Joseph, who is sold to slavery, who ends up being in Potiphar's house, who ends up being put in prison, who's now elevated to the palace. And now the narrative shifts. It shifts from the reflections that the brothers shared with Jacob, or should I say reflections the brothers shared about what happened in the past, to now reporting to the brothers, reporting by the brothers, reporting to Jacob what they now have experienced. They want to report their experience in Egypt to their father who's been waiting back in Canaan for grain. But he's also going to encounter and experience grace and don't know it. He's going to likewise take the perspective that what's happening to him is a bad and an awful thing. What happens is the funds in their sacks, verse 35, clause A, is what they got to witness. They see that. The text says that they, they emptied their sacks. There in every man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. And when they saw that, no doubt their faces changed, their countenance changed, and the Bible says that the brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of the money, the funds in the sack, the father in their sight, fear, bit of trepidation, concern, and then the fear in their souls. Verse 35, when they saw and their father saw the bundle of money, they were afraid. So we shifted from the reflection of the brothers to reporting by the brothers. And now we've come to the response of the father. And the father provides insight for us into how hurt goes beyond the immediate players involved. 
The majority of the story is about Joseph and his brothers, but their father is dealing with an assumed death of Joseph and not the brothers who are conveying that another is already in prison, Simeon, in Egypt. And the governor of the land has requested that their younger brother be brought back with them if they expect to receive another provision of grain. In other words, they have took the life of Jacob and turned it upside down. Jacob's life now is reeling in this scenario. I've lost one son, so he believes. I've got another son in prison in Egypt, and now they're asking me for my youngest son, which is going to crush me. We may want to consider how our pain in conflict or our inability at times to fail to listen to our conscience how it affects other people. What Jacob is not aware of is that his sons are very deceptive. That his sons have lied to him and manipulated the journey thus far. And what we now have is this incredible experience that Jacob is going to witness here in the text. Let's look back again at the response of Jacob. And his first response is one of remorse. Listen to what he says in verse 36. He says, you are robbing me of my children. Here it is. My children. Because of the Hebrew culture, the sons are everything. And you have already taken his initial youngest son, Joseph. Now another one of his sons is incarcerated, and you want to take his now youngest son, Benjamin. Look what he says. You are robbing me of my life. I live for these children. Now you might ask, what does that translate for us in this contemporary context? Very simple. As I said, we never really realize how when we fail to rectify our conflict with another, that it has widespread effect on others as well. Particularly if they have any care for you and I in the conflict. It reduces their desire to see us whole in the sense that they recognize we're not being as whole as we could. Maybe I should rephrase that. It doesn't really reduce their desire but it sort of affects their desire in the sense that they can't figure out why can't we make each other whole instead of breaking each other down. See, that's what this deceptive move did for Jacob's sons who did that to Joseph. It eventually broke them down. It's what the Holy Spirit does to us now, intentionally breaking us down that we might experience remorse for that which we have done. Joseph, Jacob, Jacob is remorseful that they're robbing his son. 
He responds with remembrance. Look what he says in verse 36, clause B. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. And now you want to take Benjamin. See, really what, jo what Jacob is saying is that the opening of an old womb, you are reopening a womb that had healed and now it's bleeding afresh. Because you want to take my final son. He responds with remorse. He responds in remembrance. He responds by way of ruin. Clause C of 36. All of these things are against me. And that's the reverberation of the loss of all earthly hope that everything has just been drained of him, that he needs someone to save him, that he was in danger of losing his son, watching Benjamin being taken away. Joseph felt that all had failed. Now we get that experience when we're not able to rectify our conflict. We get that experience, as I alluded to last Wednesday, last uh, Sunday, when we get to this space like Judas. We're willing to repent, but the overwhelmingness of the guilt, and then we fail to recognize that there is forgiveness. And as a result, Judas takes his own life, and sometimes in the crescents of the darkness of the night of the soul. People take their life because they find, they feel like they have found no place to find grace or forgiveness or rest for their weariness. And that's what we get in Jacob. His feeling of ruin. And yet he gives us a response of resolve. It doesn't come directly from Jacob. In fact, it comes from his son, Reuben. All people who says to his father, verse 37, you may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I'll be responsible for him and promise to bring him back. <laughs> it's as if he steps up, I think, out of a guilty conscience. Let me take responsibility for protecting my younger brother. Now, let me tell you this. Jacob is hesitant to let Benjamin go because I'm convinced Jacob is reflecting on what happened when he let Joseph be free with the brothers. He didn't come back home that day that he went out that morning. And Jacob knows that his brothers came back and told them that a wild beast had killed Joseph. But I'm convinced that Jacob knows something's not right about that story. And there's a hesitancy in him to let Benjamin go. And that's why he gives, even though Reuben gives this resolve, let me show you how I can fix this. I will take responsibility. And in a way, that's a good thing. 
It is a suggestion to us that when we know that we can be responsible to bring about resolution, let's do it. Let's step forward to solve the issue. If it works on our conscience that much, that means that we need to step forward and rectify the moment. But Jacob gives a response of resistance. Listen to what he says in verse 38. He says, my son will not go with you. His brother Joseph is dead and he is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. One more sorrow, says Jacob, will fill my cup. You will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave because Jacob remembered the irresponsibility of those brothers before with Joseph. Now Simeon is left incarcerated in Egypt and the Lord of the land wants my youngest son. I can't do it. Jacob is often criticized for acting faithless in this moment. But let's be real. Jacob has every right to feel the way that he's expressing his fear, his frustration. Believing to have lost a child, now threatening to lose two more sons. I ask the question, tell me, how will you feel in that moment? See, it's easy for people to advocate religious sayings and Trump how you've got to trust God and I, I got it. I understand why we say that. But in the moment, in the moment in which your humanity steps forward, that's what happens to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is God in the Garden of Gethsemane and yet the humanity of the incarnate Son says let this cup pass before me. His humanity says, I do not want to endure the pain of this moment of going to the cross. Nevertheless, says the King James, it's not my will. Well, Jacob hadn't got to the nevertheless moment yet. And I want you to know that some of us may be in that space where we haven't gotten to that nevertheless moment yet. We're still wrestling with the loss what it means to lose and then there's now the threat to lose more. And then there are folk in the background who are chiming just simply trust God, trust God, the Lord will make a way and you're asking every day when? Because we're still dealing with the loss. So there are three lessons that I think we can learn from this text and then I'm done. This is my closing. First lesson is this. Grace and mercy can be a surprising experience. See, remember the wrong that the brothers had done, they never could have imagined that as they came to Egypt to purchase grain, had this dialogue with the governor of the land, i.e. their brother Joseph, unbeknown to them, and then were sent back on their way because they were accused of being spies, 
And the governor says, I'm going to give you some grain this time. Actually, he didn't really say that. The governor really says in his actions, I'm going to give you grain this time. But in order for you to trade in the land, you have got to bring back your younger brother. He did a bit inquire about their family life. But there was something interesting about grace and mercy. They stood guilty before Joseph. And yet, he fills their sacks with grain and supplies. Can we not equate this kind of feeling guilty before God and yet he keeps supplying all of our needs according to his riches and glory? He keeps blessing us over and over and over again. He keeps opening up doors. He keeps making ways. He keeps healing. He keeps providing opportunities. Even in the midst of the wrong, he fills our sacks with plenty of grain, plenty of grace, plenty of mercy. And we get to our destination and begin to unfold and evolve and unveil in the privacy of our own moment, we recognize we got more. In fact, we've been given what we never even asked for. That's what grace is. It's a surprising experience. Because when we read sometimes people's interpretive nature of the Bible and says that God will judge you, we know that God will, but aren't you grateful for the many times that we violated God and then violated one another. And yet his grace is still sufficient. His love is still powerful. And his truth still blesses us to endure. So grace and mercy can be a surprising experience. Then there's a second thing. And that is that decisions affect your outcome. When you read verses 33 to 34 of the brothers, they recognize that the decision that they've made, that's why they're saying they believe that what they have done has caused them to experience what they are experiencing. The decisions that we make affect our outcome. Listen to what he said. The governor said of the land, this is how I'll find out if you're honest men. Leave your brother here with me. Take the grain for your starving families and go home. But you must bring your younger brother back. Then I'll know that you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother. And this is what he says. And then you can freely trade here in the land. So the brothers are faced with a dilemma. That's why they have to work hard at trying to to influence their father to say, listen, we have got to take Benjamin back or else we are going to die in this place because the man made clear if we don't come back with Benjamin then he know we were spies. And remember, Simeon is still there in jail. See, that's a translation for us to remember that decisions affect our outcome. That's why we have to be very cautious when Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, be angry, but sin not. Don't let the sun go down 
on your wrath. He's really telling us, be careful about the decisions you make in an angry moment. See, the brothers have to go all the way back to when Joseph was sharing with them his dream. And then they saw him when they went to Dothan. They saw him coming. Remember, go back to chapter 37. They say, here comes the dreamer. Let's get rid of him. Decisions. And they didn't know, but some 13 plus years later, that decision would come back to haunt them. You and I have made some decisions a long time ago. And it took a while for a consequence to come forward, but it did. In fact, we may be living in some of our consequences of decisions we've made earlier right now. Because decisions affect your outcome. Once again, because of grace, they don't know that it's actually going to work together. Romans 8, 28, it's going to work together for their good. God is molding it. To preserve them to keep this promise of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And sometimes God does that with us. Can you testify the bad decisions you've made and it didn't turn out as devastating as you thought it would? But grace and mercy came through once again. And then finally, progress makes you walk through the valley of uncertainty. See, in verses 36 through 38 of the chapter 42 of Genesis, there's a lot of uncertainty there, particularly in the mind of Jacob. There's some in the mind of the brothers. But Reuben's suggestion that he'll take responsibility for Benjamin if, we, if you let him go with me is merely a sense of walking through a valley of uncertainty. Jacob has to wrestle with a valley of uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen, says Jacob. I've already lost one son and now I've got another. He comes I'm about to lose another. What am I going to do? It's going to take me to my brain. Have we been there? You and I have been there. We've been in those moments where we've kind of wondered what's going to happen. We are walking through these spaces of uncertainty because that's where God has permitted us to go. And that's why it's underscored by the language of Hebrews 11. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We have to remember that faith is the substance of those things hoped for. And might I add, when we talk about evidence, sometimes you don't see it. Remember, evidence of things not seen. And Jacob is being asked to stretch out on faith because he can't see his son coming back. You may be in a space now where you can't see how you're going to get out, how you're going to come through, how you're going to rise up. Or more pointedly, how you're going to mend the difference between you and someone else. All you can do is trust 
that when you step forward to provide the resolve, you're not responsible for the recipient's response. You're only responsible to be used of God to be the midwife for the awakening of the soul and the nun. And I pray that as church congregations and people of God, because we have conflict repeatedly, that we recognize God uses people in mysterious ways to awaken our conscience. That we might come to a space of repentance and live in the grace of God who causes us to walk through the valley of uncertainty at times. And yet we have to believe he never forsakes us nor leaves us alone. But as we shall see in the weeks to come, we will come through to assure Jacob that it is well with his son. Father, thank you for the word of truth today, and thank you for this word coming out from Genesis chapter 42 as we close this chapter. We're hastening toward the conclusion of the Joseph story. And it is my prayer, Lord, that you'll continue to bless and give understanding as we attempt to figure out, thus says the Lord in this moment. Help us, O oh God, to come to a place of knowing who we are in you and how all things are possible. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, for its surprising experience. Thank you for working with our decisions how they affect our outcome and for helping us to walk through valleys of uncertainty time to time. Somebody today I pray will be saved by your grace, washed of your blood. And may this, begin, may this be the beginning of a new day as they walk forward in the newness of life. In Jesus Christ, I will pray. Amen. Well, it's my desire that God speaks to you and that God has spoken through this word and that today, your conscience has been shaped. Whatever difference you have with someone, make it right. Fix it. So that you can live in what the Apostle Paul declares really as a peaceful conscience, as well as Isaiah. That you can live with a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what the Word of God will do for each of us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, my gratitude is to each of you for being kind enough to support and to view this worship experience each week. We certainly solicit your support financially and thank you for giving. And however you do so, we are certainly appreciative of that. We pray that in Jesus' name, you will continue to give us that support. And as I always say, it is my blessed privilege to share the word of God with you. And always remember, God loves you. So do I. And I want you to have a blessed, exciting, wonderful week in the Lord. Now let us prepare our hearts and minds to get ready that we might go to the Lord's table and share in the breaking of the bread. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to this sacred moment in which we've gathered around the Lord's table in which we share in this communion moment in which Jesus shared with his disciples in that upper room. As they gathered around the table, the Bible says that he took bread, looked unto heaven, 
and gave thanks for it, and then he gave it to his disciples. As Jesus and his disciples did eat together, let us eat together. Likewise, it says that he took the cup, looked into heaven and gave thanks for it, and then he gave it to his disciples as they did drink together. Let us drink together. When they had finished, they sung hymns and began to make their way out to the Mount of Olives. Let's leave this time rejoicing that we've had a chance to break bread together as a community and be grateful that God has continuously blessed us and that we look forward to meeting again in this sacred moment of worship in spirit and in truth. Be blessed until we meet again in Jesus' name.